of five drafts. The first is on inexpensive white paper. I don't try for style. I just spill it all out. The second draft is on yellow paper. That's when I work on characterization. The third is pink. I work on story motivation. Then blue. That's where I cut, cut, cut. And then the final draft on good white paper. Sinclair Lewis actually made maps of the street of his town, the houses where his character lived, and he pasted them on the wall. I have my own kind of filing system, a large blackboard. I match my chalk to the colored paper I'm using, so I'll know which draft a certain character or incident comes into being. You're listening to episode 86 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. When men write about sex, it's considered art. When women write about sex, it's trash. The runaway success of Jacqueline Suzanne's novels are a perfect example of the double standards that make a book either a literary or a seedy bunk buster. Before Valley of the Dolls was published, one editor called the novel Death on Toast. Another said, there are good bad books, but that this was a bad bad book, barely literate in fact. During the launch of Valley of the Dolls, Jacqueline Suzanne was often accused in interviews of peddling filth. One TV interviewer in Toronto asked her how she could sleep at night, knowing that she hadn't made any artistic contribution. Jackie fired back, you're sick. How do you sleep at night, knowing you're not Huntley Brinkley? At a big party to celebrate the book launch in New York, one snob groused of the guests, if James Joyce walked in, someone would call him baby. Jackie dismissed the critics, even when it stung, such as Gloria Steinem's review, where she said Valley of the Dolls was so poorly written that Jackie had made Harold Robbins look like Proust and Grace Metallius look like Dostoevsky. Valley of the Dolls spent 28 weeks in the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list, and it stayed there for 65 weeks on the list in general. It has sold more than 31 million copies. Jackie's novel was considered the best-selling novel of all time. She made history by becoming the first author to hit the number one spot three times in a row. After Hollywood adapted her first novel, Jackie was shocked by the changes they made and worried that the film was so bad it would harm future book sales. One night, she and her husband, Irving Mansfield, walked by a cinema on Broadway playing Valley of the Dolls. The queue snaked around the block. Jackie looked at the patrons, the sex workers, the pimps, showgirls, and assembled Broadway characters and breathed a sigh of relief. These were her people. Jackie's story resonates on so many levels, from her entry into the world during a pandemic to the 20 years she spent in show business waiting for a big break, to the way she wrote to save her own life after breast cancer. Jackie's life story is better than the plot she created that made her rich and famous. 
Jacqueline Suzanne was born in, born in Philadelphia in 1918, during the outbreak of the Spanish flu. Philadelphia was especially hard hit by the pandemic. Her mother Rose, a school teacher, and her father Robert, an artist who painted society portraits, worried for their infant daughter's safety. Outside the family home in West Philadelphia was one of the collection points for the dead. Another drop-off spot for victims of the flu was located in front of the pharmacy owned by her uncle, Henry Suzanne. Several neighbors died in Henry's shop after their family members brought, sought a last-ditch cure from their trusted pharmacist. Rose decided to take baby Jackie to Atlantic City for the fresh air as a healthy escape from the rising number of the dead in the city. Rose believed in the curative powers of the salt air and pushed Jackie up and down the boardwalk for five or six hours each day in the middle of winter. In an effort to protect Jackie from infection, Rose doused her hands in rubbing alcohol before she changed her diapers or touched her. Rose wore a face mask when she went near the child. Before she breastfed Jackie, Rose cleaned her nipples with strong antiseptics until they were raw and breastfeeding became an ordeal. Rose was afraid to touch her daughter, yet she worried that Jackie might be deprived of warmth and affection. By 1920, when the Spanish flu had disappeared, Rose went back to work teaching and hired in teenage girls to look after Jackie. Rose was reportedly a great beauty and resembled the actress Norma Talmadge. Rose believed in education was the key to women's independence. It was Rose who added the extra N to her married name to stress the correct pronunciation from away from Susan to Suzanne. Her husband Robert accepted commissions for society portraits to support the family. At his peak, he received $5,000 for each painting that um, he did in oil. By all accounts, his portraits were deeply flattering. He added his beloved nephew's muscular physique to the portraits of men from the best families in the city who were in no way as fit. For society ladies, Suzanne paid a series of models with slender figures that would be a stand-in for the outsized matrons. Robert developed a reputation for flattery that extended beyond the canvas. In the loft he kept in the city for his work, he carried on many affairs with society dames and, and the models on his payroll. Like many wives married to serial philanderers, Rose felt humiliated by the affairs and the gossip that circulated about her husband. Rose's frustration led to frequent rows in the home in front of Jackie. The Suzannes argued about the bathtub whiskey he made during Prohibition. Rose also thought that motion pictures were a bad influence on Jackie, but Robert loved to take his daughter to the cinema. Once they argued about Bob taking Jackie to the Mummers Parade, the four-year-old Jackie was thrilled, but it produced a nightmare that recurred until her father died. In the nightmare, Jackie dreamt that Rose pulled her by one arm and Bob in the other until she was ripped in half. Jackie loved to visit her father's studio in the city, 
One day, she convinced her babysitter to take her there for a visit. She wanted to surprise her father, only it was Jackie who had the shock when she opened the door and found her father on top of one of his models, making the beast with two backs. Flossie, the teenage girl who was hired to watch Jackie, was still climbing the stairs when Jackie had burst into the room. At the sight of her father naked, on top of a woman on his red velvet couch, Jackie turned and ran down the stairs and insisted Flossie take her home. The image made an indelible impact on Jackie. She couldn't erase the picture of him, looking all humped over, as she put it. Later, when she wrote her novels, the most frequent description she used for sex was humping. Jackie became preoccupied as a girl with the mechanics of sex. She used a pair of scissors to cut her baby dolls open between the legs. The sand filling poured out. Alarmed, Rose asked Jackie why she did it. Her daughter replied, I wanted to see if their sissy fell out. Sissy was the name she had learned to call her private parts. Flossie told Jackie to stop stop cutting up her dolls because it was upsetting her mother, and she secretly sewed them back together again. Jackie's interest in sex continued, but was overtaken by a healthier obsession, writing. Encouraged by an aunt, Jackie kept a diary. When she was seven years old, she wrote her first play during a summer holiday spent next to a boys' camp where she watched the boys put on shows. In her first play, Jackie spoke the dialogue for three parts. A toddler played the wife, Jackie was cast as the husband, and Jackie's friend Thelma was cast in the role of other woman. At seven years old, Jackie was already rehearsing racy plots that would become the mainstay of the novel she wrote as an adult woman. Rose was embarrassed by the play, but she didn't stop Jackie from doing it. Jackie also wrote verses, encouraged by her Anne Hester, and stories with her father, where she would embellish descriptions of what she saw on the way home from school, based on the stories she had read from Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.G. Wells. In the stories, Jackie often imagined herself as a female Tarzan. She remembered that when she was nine or ten, she had a teacher who predicted that Jackie would become a writer. The teacher noted that Jackie broke all the rules, but she made it work. That's pretty much what her publisher decided when he accepted Valley of the Dolls. Bob took Jackie to see the jazz singer and Flesh and the Devil, The Garbo picture made a deep impression on Jackie. It was the beginning of her devotion to the stars. She tacked a photograph of Garbo on the wall. Over the years, she extended her fandom with pictures of women from the stage and screen. Pinned to her wall next to Garbo were photos of actresses like June Knight and one of Margot Gilmore, a stage actress who is dressed in dominatrix gear with high boots and a riding crop. Jackie had been fascinated by clothing at an early age, for how women used it as a means to communicate something about themselves. Her grandfather, a Jewish emigre from Russia, was an expert tailor. He had made clothes for Jackie from the time of her second birthday. 
When he died, she was deeply moved by her grandmother, Ida, who stood up proudly at the funeral and tore open the velvet gown that her husband had sewn. The rest of the family followed suit, everyone tearing at their clothes to the waist. Jackie did the same. For Jackie's first date, she wore one of her mother's black dresses and a pair of heels. Rose told her not to drink anything, but that she she could smoke to look like she belonged with the group. Jackie's date was a junior at the University of Pennsylvania. She was only 14. As a teenager, she auditioned multiple times to appear on local radio show, The Children's Hour. Jackie had the theater bug from when she wrote her first play at age seven, and she was determined to pursue a career in show business, much to her mother's chagrin. Rose wanted Jackie to go to university, but Jackie might have accepted a prison sentence first. Through her mother's friend, Jackie eventually landed an audition with the Children's Hour. She didn't have a great singing voice, they told her, and missed out on being cast. Jackie returned the following week with an original sketch that she wrote for the show. The booking agent told Jackie she was talented, but didn't think the sketch was right for the show. Jackie persisted in auditions, and after a while made an appearance performing a novelty tap routine to the number Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? After school, Jackie still paid visits to her father's art studio. Once, when she took along a friend, Robert passed the girl a note on the sly, asking her to return to the studio studio alone. She did. Robert carried on with the girl until he got her pregnant. Then he panicked and reached out to his friends, begging for the name of an abortionist. He was terrified of the scandal if it ever got out that he knocked up one of his daughter's school friends. It would mean the end of his work painting society portraits. Every rotten bastard in Jackie's novels is some variation of Robert Suzanne. Robin Stone, the heel from the love machine, even shared the same initials. Jackie was a daddy's girl and loved her father madly, even though he was an unscrupulous cad when it came to women. At age 17, Jackie entered a beauty contest in Philadelphia. The contest was sponsored by burlesque promoter Earl Carroll. You may recall that I mentioned him in my podcast episode on Yvonne DiCarlo. Earl Carroll was the guy who who required women to open their blouse and unhook their bra as part of the audition. He claimed he wanted to be sure that their breasts were real before they were hired. In his contest to find Philadelphia's most beautiful girl, the grand prize was a screen test shot in New York City for Warner Brothers Studio. It just so happened that her father, Robert, was one of the judges for the contest. Jackie won it. With barely a backward glance, she was on the train to bigger and better things in New York City. Nothing came of Jackie's screen test, but she was undaunted. She made the rounds of Broadway booking agents and town scouts looking for work on the stage. 
One of the first friends Jackie made in the city was another resident in the Kenmore Hall, a hotel for women, a girl named Elfie, who had been in vaudeville since she was six years old. She became a partial model for Neely O'Hara later when Jackie wrote Valley of the Dolls. Elfie taught Jackie how to survive on the cheap and where the theater crowd hung out. They ate in Walgreens and at the automat. Elfie was a major kleptomaniac. She stole books and clothes. In one of her outings with Elfie, Jackie was fascinated by a man with a strange, raspy voice. She watched as the man was approached with several hard luck stories by out-of-work actors looking for an easy touch. Elfie told her it was Joe E. Lewis. Jackie was confused by the similarity with the prize fighter. Elfie explained that this was Joe E. Lewis. He was famous in Chicago and Hollywood nightclubs, a comics comic, and former vaudevillian like herself. But he wasn't known in New York. Lewis was keen to work the Manhattan circuit. Like many performers, he felt that you hadn't really made it until you were big in New York. Lewis made such a big impression on Jackie that he informed every other relationship she had with men. Joey Lewis had quite a story himself, one that Frank Sinatra played in the screen version, The Joker is Wild. Elfie filled Jackie in on the highlights, the rest she learned over the course of their affair, which would happen much later. Lewis ran afoul of the Chicago Mafia. In 1927, a pair of Al Capone's men burst into his hotel room, smashed his skull with a pipe until he was unconscious, then slashed open his throat a dozen times. They left him for dead. Somehow, the vaudevillian crawled into the hallway and was saved. The ambulance drivers took him to the morgue before they realized he was still alive. It took two hours before he, or, sorry, it took two years before he could speak again. And even then, his voice was but a whisper of what it once was. Lewis was decades older than Jackie, but she was enthralled by him and the cachet of showbiz lore that he knew. One of his signature lines from his act was, You only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. Later, when he was dying, he changed his mind and quipped, Once is not enough. Jackie used that for the title of her third novel. Frustrated by Broadway logic, the idea that you had to have an agent in order to get a part, and you had to have a part to get an agent, Jackie buttonholed an agent one day until he agreed to pass on a lead. He told her to check with J.J. Schubert's chorus line. Schubert liked Jackie, but didn't think she was right for the production he had underway. She went back to see the agent, stopping first to pick up a bag of donuts in case he was hungry. After he polished off the donuts, the agent told Jackie the audition could start. Jackie stood there, puzzled. Then the agent grabbed her and forced his tongue into her mouth. She whacked at him until he let her go, and then answered his clumsy sexual overture with the news that she felt like vomiting. Back in the woman's hotel, Elfie counseled Jackie to be smarter 
about insulting the one agent who gave her the time of day. Tell him you're engaged, she suggested. It was a more polite refusal. At 17, Jackie had her first experience with the casting couch. It wouldn't be her last. After months of struggling to find a job on the stage, she bluffed her way into a casting call for a little play. When she met with the producer, Max Gordon, Jackie pretended they had a friend in common, an old friend of the family. Max Gordon asked if she could speak French. Jackie faked it and said she did. He had a little part he could give her, a French maid who had a few lines in a scene set in a bathtub with Crystal Allen. Reader Jackie was cast in the opening run of The Women on Broadway. She was signed at $25 a week, due for rehearsal the next day. Elfie tried to help Jackie with her accent, but concluded she sounded more like vaudeville French than the real thing. At two in the morning, Jackie, in a panic that she would be caught out the next day, banged on the door of a dress shop, looking for the owner, who happened to be French. She was desperate for help. The next morning, she thought if she didn't sound the part, she could at least look the part. Jackie went to a uniform supply shop and purchased a maid's uniform that fit snugly across her chest. Anything to distract from her feeble accent. Jackie was stage-struck by seeing the star Leland Hayward, the agent, sitting next to the playwright Claire Booth in the audience. Ilka Chase was playing Sylvia Fowler. She had achieved success in Hollywood, in addition to being a smash on Broadway. Also cast in the production, in the role of Mary Haynes, was none other than Margot Gilmore, one of Jackie's crushes and favorite actresses. Jackie swooned and followed her about. Later, she would move into Margalo's building, which, the actress noted, was a bit much. Jackie struck up a friendship with another girl in the cast. Her name was Beatrice Cole, a tall, elegant blonde from New England. B was a society dame who had written impassioned essays against matrimony when she was only 13 years old when she realized that the teacher she adored was married. After a posh education and a year abroad, B had settled in New York, modeling at the John Robert Powers Agency when she decided to try her luck on the stage. B and Jackie would become lifelong friends. B spoke French and agreed to coach Jackie in the part. B decided that Jackie was an excellent mimic and had the part down cold, but the next day, in front of the company, a case of nerves kept Jackie from giving the same performance. Jackie blew her three lines and had a dire accent. She was replaced. Most women would cry and run away, but not Jackie. After the production opened, Jackie made friends with the man at the stage door, who let her slip backstage every night, watching in the wings. She was the show's biggest fan. She was there every night. Eventually, her persistence was rewarded. When one of the bit players got married and left the show in the summer of 1937, a model from the scene in Black's department store, where Mary confronts Crystal in the dressing room, they gave the part to Jackie. 
This time, she nailed the three lines she had and received even bigger laughs than the woman she replaced. While she was appearing in the women, one afternoon, she sat in Walgreens waiting for a call on the payphone. A man kept hogging the booth, and Jackie worried she would miss out on the call for another job. The man turned out to be the press agent, Irving Mansfield. He invited Jackie out for a proper lunch instead of the tuna fish sandwich and Coke that all the other Broadway hopefuls had. Over lunch, Irving won Jackie over with dropping names and juicy stories about showbiz. They married in 1939 in her father's studio at 1717 Walnut Street in Philadelphia. The reception moved to the flat below the studio where her parents lived. The best man in the ceremony was Goodman Ace, a prominent radio and television writer. His wedding gift to the bride was a portable typewriter. It changed Jackie's life. Jackie had a bad experience when she was embroiled in an affair with Eddie Cantor that same year when she was cast in one of his Broadway shows. They had been caught fooling around in his dressing room. His wife found out and put her foot down. She had Cantor close the show and spend the winter in Palm Springs. More than 200 people were out of work and they put the blame on Jackie. Jackie had a thing for Jewish comics. It started with Joey Joey Lewis, her first, and was followed by Eddie Cantor and George Jessel. Years later, Jackie told a friend, no matter who a woman sleeps with or how many people, she only thinks of one man. Jackie was still keen to fill a scrapbook with notices and pursue a career on stage. She did summer stock with B. Cole. She had a small role in the stage production of Cry Havoc, which was later filmed in 1943 with Margaret Sullivan, Anne Southern, and Joan Blondell. During the previews for Winged Victory in 1944, Jackie decided the show was in big trouble. She spent 36 hours on a rewrite for the producer, Vinton Friedley. She also happened to be having an affair with him at the time. Friedley was offended that she tried to do the rewrite, but he conceded that she should write her own play and he would read it. During production of A Lady Says Yes, she fell in love with the star, Carol Landis. Jackie and Carol shared a passionate love affair, which lasted as long as the run of the play, as is often the case with romance between cast members. Carol gave Jackie gifts of jewelry. They exchanged letters until Carol's overdose in 1948. Jackie was gutted by the news and paid tribute to one of the most loving relationships she had by modeling the character Jennifer North on Carol. In 1945, after the run of A Lady Says Yes and Jackie was out of work, she took out the portable typewriter, the wedding present from Goodman Ace, and got B. Cole to agree to write a comedy for the stage. B and Jackie made an excellent writing team. They came up with a play they titled The Temporary Mrs. Smith, which they wrote in three and a half weeks. The plot 
revolves around an aging actress down on her luck who decides she can solve her problems by getting a rich husband. The actress buys a fancy dog to attract a rich man. But before she can seal the deal and marry Mr. Moneybags, her ex-husbands keep turning up to spoil her plans. It sounds like Noel Coward mixed with Edith Wharton to me. B. Cole described it as a mixture of Broadway, Hollywood, cafe society, and everything we laugh at and hate and envy. Producer Vinton Friedley read the script and was impressed. He gave them a big fat check and promised to produce the show. The pre-production dragged on for months. In the interim, Jackie became pregnant, news which left her overjoyed. When she was on the road with the play, writing revisions during the previews and tryouts, she struggled with adjusting to the changes in her body. One day, she caught sight of herself in a hotel room mirror, her slim figure swollen with child. She asked out loud, how could this happen to lovely me? Songwriter Arthur Siegel was in the room at the time. He was inspired by her funny comment and wrote a song called Lovely Me to use in the show. It was so catchy that the producer changed the name of the play to Lovely Me. The cast included Jesse Royce Landis and Misha Auer. Lovely Me was not a critical success, but it was certainly a commercial success. Despite the fact that it opened to a packed house and each performance was sold out in New York, the play folded once the theater booking was disrupted and they had trouble finding a new location. Jackie was visiting her parents in Philadelphia when her water broke. She rang her doctor in New York. He told her to get on the train immediately and admit herself to a hospital in Manhattan. When Jackie gave birth to a healthy boy, they named him Guy Mansfield. He sounds ready-made for a Douglas Sirk production. As Guy grew, though, he developed behavioral problems that worried his parents. Jackie went from doctor to doctor, all of whom seemed more interested in either blaming her or ignoring the problem. Eventually, Jackie found a doctor who diagnosed Guy as autistic. When he grew older and she felt unable to care for him, Jackie was advised to place Guy in an institution. Jackie lived with the guilt that she had failed her son. Jackie didn't share the truth about Guy's condition with anyone because she feared that if he improved at the onset of puberty, as doctors suggested he might, he would be stigmatized. She told friends that Guy was enrolled in a school in Arizona because he had asthma. Married life was not always easy. Irving experienced a career upswing in the early years of television, but he didn't do as much as he could have to help his wife get a leg up. Jackie did have fun in one role that started on radio and moved to television. It was a variety show built around the comic Maury Amsterdam. She played Jackie, the cigarette girl, in funny skits where she was also able to show off her legs that went on for days. Years later, in a heated row, which happened in front of dinner guests, Jackie shouted at Irving that he didn't understand why she needed to be loved by an audience. She went into her closet and took out a package wrapped in brown paper down from a shelf. 
She opened it and pulled out a wool coat. She waved the coat at Irving. A fan of Jackie the Cigarette Girl had sent the winter coat to the TV station. With a note, the woman had worried that poor Jackie would be cold going home in her skimpy outfit on the subway. Jackie held the coat under Irving's nose as a rebuke. That was what mattered, to make a connection with an audience. By the 1950s, Jackie made frequent television appearances. She was a popular guest on programs such as The Ben Hecht Show. Jackie, a pro, was not easily rattled. One night, Hecht's producer collected eight homeless men from the Bowery for a group interview. Unflappable, Jackie winced at the stench they gave off, but didn't miss a beat. She turned to Hecht and quipped, Ben, why didn't you tell me you had your fan club with you tonight? In 1955, Jackie became a a local celebrity on New York television programs, sponsored by a a consortium of lace manufacturers. Each week, Jackie hosted the commercial breaks in stunning costumes made with Shifley lace. As the Shifley girl, Jackie even brought her French poodle into the act. They wore matching outfits. Jackie won several local best-dressed women on television awards. Jackie wrote the scripts for the two-minute spots, ad-libbed with guests about the products, and developed media marketing skills that would come in handy when she decided to become an author. Jackie wrote her first book about her dog. She titled it Every Night Josephine. The book began as a series of humorous letters to friends about her adventures in pet training. Jackie wrote the book from Josephine's point of view. At the last minute, though, the publisher had passed on the book because she had already, they had already commissioned one from Beatrice Lilly on her dog. Friends sent Jackie to Bernie Geis, an independent publisher who started his firm as a cooperative with celebrities who had books on the market, such as Groucho Marx and Dear Abby. Geis brought them on board by arguing they could keep a larger percentage of the sales if they were part owners of the publishing house. Geis had a big success with books like Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl. Every Night Josephine was moderately successful and sold around 35,000 copies. Most of the sales were due to Jackie's vigorous promotion skills. From personalized appearances to the Rolodex she kept of booksellers, she created it on the sort of Joan Crawford method of learning their names, hobbies, and the names of their friends and family members and their pets, and sending thoughtful notes and little gifts. Jackie reasoned that they were all in it together. Unfortunately, the book tour was cut short by the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. In 1962, Jackie was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a mastectomy. She was 44. Afterward, she went to her wishing hill in Central Park and begged God for another 10 years. It was a spot she frequently went to when she wanted something or needed something. In an interview, Jackie later made a joke that Irving always said she bargained with God as though he were an agent in the William Morris office. She hadn't reached her goals yet. She needed to leave something behind. 
She wanted success before she died. Could she please have 10 more years? Above anything, she wanted recognition rather than the wealth. She dreamt of walking into 21 and have everyone say, that's Jacqueline Suzanne, the author. In the past, she used to dream they'd say, that's Jacqueline Suzanne, the actress. But after she recovered from breast cancer, she decided to write her first novel. She brought she bought a bunch of hot bestsellers by Harold Robbins and Rona Jaffe. With friends, she tore up the books and then put them back together to see how Robbins' characters came to life and how common threads joined them. At one point, she shouted, I know how he did it, and she would do it too. Jackie knew that discipline was the path forward. Every day, she worked from 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock on the book in the den, which she referred to as her torture chamber. She called it that because it was also formerly Guy's nursery. Jackie typed slowly, using only two fingers. She created a system and wrote five drafts of the novel. The first draft was on cheap white paper, hot and fast, just get the story down. For the second draft, she typed on yellow paper for character development. The third draft was on story motivation, was done in pink. And the fourth draft was blue. She cut it down to the bone. For the final draft, Jackie wrote on expensive white paper. Jackie felt, unlike other authors, that she had to keep going and writing until every idea and everything she could think of would get out of onto the page. She was kind of like a gambler. If she was on a streak, she kept going. Jackie was known for having a gifted memory and picking up dialogue. She remembered what people said and how they said it. She drew on all the stories and the tangy dialogue she had encountered over 20 years in showbiz. She put it all in the book. The novel has a lot to say about women's ambition and the price of fame. And at another level, it was a cautionary tale about drug addiction. The pills, which she called dolls in the novel, are the common thread that connected the characters. Jackie knew about dolls firsthand. Jackie had nearly overdosed twice, once after Guy was taken away and once after her mastectomy. She had friends who had the same experience with prescription drugs. Jackie noted that we all control everything with pills, our weight, depression, pregnancy. While drinking could tank a career in a hurry, Jackie argued that pills could extend your performance up to a certain point. They helped you rest at night and then picked you up in the morning to keep you fresh and sparkle. In an interview, Jackie stated that she was often met with disbelief about the widespread drug problem. People asked her, what kind of a girl takes pills? Jackie replied that you hear people say that if she came from a good background, she wouldn't do that. Then you hear, if she really had talent, she wouldn't need pills. Finally, you hear if men liked her better, she wouldn't be insecure. Anne came from a fine family. Neely was burning with talent. And Jen could have had almost any man. Jackie showed readers that anyone could fall in the Valley of the Dolls. 
When publisher Bernie Geis sent the manuscript for feedback to his editors, the responses were uniformly negative. One reader went so far as to call Valley of the Dolls death on toast. Others called it lurid, trashy, and poorly written. Geis was unconvinced. Before he rejected it, rejected it, he said he was going to do some Scarsdale research. In other words, he wanted his wife Darlene to read it. She also worked in publishing and he trusted her opinion. Darlene sat up in bed reading it. Her verdict was that it was like picking up a phone and listening to two women talk about how their husbands were in bed. No one would hang up on that kind of conversation. Thanks to Darlene Geis, the dolls were saved from the bin. The publisher assigned Don Preston to edit Jackie's book. Don noted that he fought with her over three more revisions. Don Preston called for more sex scenes, and it needed a confrontation scene between Neely O'Hara and Helen Lawson, which became the one set in the ladies' room where Neely snatches Helen's wig. Jackie wasn't thrilled with the scene and thought it was a bit contrived, but she gave him what he asked for. After the third revision, which in total meant Jackie wrote eight drafts of the novel, she included a note which said she had finished writing the book. The note said, The day is over when the point of writing is to turn a phrase that critics will quote like Henry James. I'm not interested in turning a phrase. Don Preston recalled that Jackie did fight over phrases and more. She refused concessions the publisher wanted. They wanted her to get rid of the description in the opening of New York City as an angry concrete animal. No dice. It stayed. Don Preston was critical of the language she used in sex scenes. He wanted her to use the word nipple at one point, but Jackie despised the word. She refused. She said it called to mind suckling pigs. Bernie Geis held his breath when it came time to auction the paperback rights before the book was even published. Only one bid came in from Bantam. In a not wholly ethical move, he lied to Bantam and made it seem like they were in a bidding war and would need to increase their offer. They did. In the end, they paid $125,000 with an increase in residuals if the novel made the New York Times bestseller list. Producer Jackie's husband, Irving Mansfield, was instrumental in marketing the book. Jackie revamped her techniques she used to promote Every Night Josephine. She brought out that Rolodex of the booksellers nationwide. She posted signed copies with personal notes, asking for help to sign the book or to sell the book. Irving discovered the names of bookstores whose sales were used to compile the New York Times bestseller list. He dispatched hired assistants who bought every copy on display. Jackie had a knack for marketing that she had developed as the Shifley girl. She knew that her appearance was part of it. Jackie always appeared dressed like a showgirl. She wore falls, the big hair pieces that were pinned to the crown, all in inky black. Her makeup was piled on and flawless. Jackie was the patron saint of Poochie. She wore it everywhere because she said it packed easily. 
Jackie went on a publicity tour that was relentless, inspired, and lasted for years. She would do up to 30 interviews a week on television and radio. She turned up at bookshops for photo ops. She did signings. She traveled across the country and back out again. When the paperback was released, Jackie became alarmed when she saw drivers dump the books at a delivery spot. She waged waged a charm offensive with the Teamsters. Jackie would arrive at dawn, armed with pastries and a photographer. In response, the Teamsters complied and showed up in press clothes with shoes that held a high shine. Bernie Geis paid for ads in the book section of local papers, but Jackie said that wasn't good enough. He needed to place ads in the entertainment section. Jackie reasoned that a book was just like a detergent or any other product. First, the public had to know it exists. Why not advertise next to the cinema and theater listings? The publisher sent out copies to every book critic and any celebrity they thought might help advance the word on sales. Letty Pagribin, who worked publicity for the publishing house and went on to become a founding member of Ms. Magazine and wrote books on feminism, developed an eye-catching gimmick. She sent out the copies of the novel with a note written on a fake prescription pad. The note read, take three yellow dolls for a broken love affair, take two red dolls and a shot of scotch for a shattered career, take Valley of the Dolls in heavy doses for the truth about the glamour set on the pill kick. After Jackie's book was a success, they once checked into the Beverly Hills Hotel. Irving found out that Harold Robbins was also a guest in the hotel. Robbins was Jackie's closest competition in book sales. Irving did some snooping and found out that Robbins went to the pool at the same time every day. Irving then went to a bookshop and bought 40 copies of Valley of the Dolls. He passed them around around the pool to guests. When Robbins turned up, he was shocked at the sight of every nose buried in his rival's book. Promotional gimmicks helped drive the book sales, but really what made Jackie's book climb to number one and stay there was the characters. The story of ambitious women trying to make it in the highly competitive field refuses to age. The novel is as fresh and riveting today as it was in 1966. Readers enjoyed talking about characters and who they were really based on in real life. When people talked about the book, they played the match game. It was easy to match Neely O'Hara with Judy Garland, the star that shone bright and then fell out of the sky. She was based on Judy, but also partially on Elfie, the little vaudevillian Jackie had met in New York City. Ann Wells was based on three different people. She was part Jackie, part B, with a dash of Grace Kelly, the most famous star from, from Philadelphia. Jennifer North, as I said, was often believed to be Marilyn Monroe, but was actually based on Carol Landis. The parallels with Carol Landis and Jennifer North are there with the suicide, but also they both had mothers who used them like cash machines. Helen Lawson was based on Ethel Merman. Jackie was obsessed with Ethel earlier. They had an affair. 
And during their affair, they had makeout sessions on couches during parties in the open, in public. When Ethel called it quits, Jackie stood outside her hotel room door banging and screaming that she loved her. The temperature between them was Baltic for years afterward. They became friends again after Ethel lost her daughter in a suicide. Problems with the film adaptation began as soon as 20th Century Fox bought the rights for the big screen. First, there was a power struggle between Daryl Zanuck, who had been effectively running the studio since 1935, and his son and heir apparent, Richard. For the senior Zanuck, Valley of the Dolls would continue the glossy tradition of melodramas from previous decades. Daryl Zanuck had been making prestigious women's pictures since his time as a screenwriter in Warner Brothers. But the younger Zanuck thought it was a glorified soap opera, old-fashioned, and not part of the direction he envisioned for the studio to compete with the new indie spirit, which, by the way, was dominated by macho stories about men. Richard Zanuck also worried that Jackie had no sales record, since she had only published one book before about her dog. Daryl Zanuck had his way, as he often did. Fox gambled and bought the manuscript before it had been published, for $80,000 up front. The payouts would increase to a total of $200,000 in the usual escalator deal. Had Jackie gambled and waited to see how the book sold, she could have asked for much, much more. Still, between the Banton uh, paperback rights and her deal with Fox, Jackie made a cool $200,000 before the book was even published. When Jackie sold the rights to Fox, she passed on the offer to do the screenplay. In her view, the book was one thing and the film was another. Her time would be better spent working on the next novel rather than going through revisions and arguing with producers. Remember that the Hayes Code was still in effect. It wasn't officially dismantled until 1968. She signed away creative control to her book and had no say in casting or uh, changes that the studio made. As it turned out, she would wail bitterly that Fox had ruined her book. Not since the search for Scarlett O'Hara had so much publicity been generated over the casting of a picture. As the novel climbed on the bestseller list, everyone who read and loved the book had an opinion on who should play the characters on screen. Jackie had her own ideas on casting. She wanted Liza Minnelli to play Neely O'Hara, Betty Davis as Helen Lawson, Mia Farrow as Anne Wells, Carolyn Jones for Jennifer North, Robert Redford as Lion Burke. Elvis Presley as Tony Pilar, George C. Scott as Henry Bellamy. In her contract, Jackie had a cameo included, which Irving likened to a skinny Hitchcock with big hair moment for Jackie. Jackie was the only member of the cast who had a limo bring her to the studio. In the parking lot, she had a space reserved with her name stenciled in the tarmac. She had the benefit of studio hair and makeup, but let's face it, Jackie probably knew as much as Ben Nye did about makeup. She has three lines in the picture as one of the reporters who asks questions after Jennifer's suicide. She is a vision of poochie, hair, and brass. She's a star. 
Jackie always said she never had anything to do with the screenplay, but Helen Deutsch, who wrote the second draft and shares the screen credit with Dorothy Kingsley, noted that she received many notes from Jackie. Deutsch wrote the wrote the picture, the screenplay, in a classic woman's picture style that made her uh, career in in Hollywood in the 1940s and 50s. Helen had written the scripts for National Velvet, Golden Earrings, The Loves of Carmen, and she adapted Lillian Roth's bestseller, I'll Cry Tomorrow, for Susan Hayward. Helen found the theme in Valley of of the Dolls with the character Helen Lawson, This was a story about survival, she felt. In the struggle for fame and success, the goal was to endure. In order to be a lasting star on Broadway, Helen Lawson had to be resilient, tough as nails, and take no prisoner. None of the cast members seemed to enjoy the production. Patty Duke recalled in her memoir that the scene was chaotic, but one constant that bound all the women together was their hatred for the director, Mark Robeson. Patty called him a mean-spirited son of a bitch, especially for the way he treated Judy Garland. Judy was nervous about stepping into the role. She needed to come back desperately. Judy had expected Robeson to drop by her dressing room for the first day and escort her to the set. She felt she earned that honor and dug her heels in. Robeson did not grant her that bit of chivalry. Judy sat for hours in the dressing room, day after day, waiting for a small concession, which magnified her already nervous condition. Things went downhill quickly. Judy appeared visibly intoxicated. She was surrounded by an entourage who brought in cases of leap for milch and topped her glass throughout the day. They slipped her dolls to ease the strain, but which left her unable to perform. Robeson wasn't just cold to Judy by not paying her respect she was due as a star. He also ordered her to be on the set each day at 6.30 in the morning. But then he didn't have her on the call sheet until each day at 4.30 in the afternoon. As I told you in previous episodes, one of the worst things you could do to an older actress was to schedule her at the end of the day. Most likely, it pushed Judy over the edge. She had to sit and wait all day, with her nerves frazzled and her confidence rapidly falling away. Judy Garland had many loyal friends, and they believed 20th Century Fox used her for publicity and never really planned to have her stay in the cast. After 10 days, they had 90 seconds of Judy on film and ended her contract. When news leaked that Judy had been pushed out by the studio, the response was swift and overwhelmingly negative. Reporters asked Jackie about Judy leaving the cast. Jackie rallied behind Judy. She explained that it was a matter of difference between studio training and TV training. Judy had been brought up in the studio system where they would do 30 takes to get each scene done perfectly. But TV was different, she explained. Actresses like Patty Duke and Barbara Parkins were of the small screen and it moved at a different pace. You had to get it right in one take. Robeson rang Susan Hayward to replace Judy without considering any other possibilities. Having been recently widowed, Susan Hayward agreed to the role only if Fox paid every Senate owed to Judy outright. 
Susan Hayward's last picture for Fox had been in 1960, when she walked out after having been queen of the studio for years. Hayward had filmed her last picture in 1964. Actually, she slowed her career down once she married Floyd Eaton Chalky in 1957. Susan noted that she had 10 perfect years with her second husband, which made up for the absolutely hellish 10 years she spent with her first husband, Jess Barker. I told you about this in my podcast episode on I'll I'll Cry Tomorrow. Susan Hayward's salary stipulated for four scenes would be shot in two weeks on the set for the sum of $50,000. If you ask me, they got her on the cheap. Susan is my favorite part of Valley of the Dolls. Helen Lawson, Survivor, Warhorse, Trooper is the one true star. Susan was far removed from her character in real life, though, when reporters turned up with the cliched questions, asking Susan if she felt threatened by the beautiful young co-stars. She replied, you have your day, and then it's somebody else's day. Why try to hang on? I'm not trying to hang on. Susan wasn't terrified of the new generation. She liked her life in Fort Lauderdale. Susan is... So stunning in the role, she could outact her co-stars if she were buried in quicksand. She is what they could all only hope to be one day. I'll Go Out the Way I Came In is a rallying cry for women who refuse to give up the spotlight. Choreographer Robert Sidney had worked with Susan Hayward on the set of The Conqueror, that picture where nearly everyone was exposed to radioactive debris from a nuclear testing site, thanks to Howard Hughes. He noted that she was perfect from the first day on set and that she was the only actress he ever met who never made a bitchy comment about any other actress. Sydney was also there to guide her through her numbers, but also to coach her through the scene with Patty in the infamous powder room wig snatch scene. No one aside from Susan Hayward had anything nice to say about Mark Robeson. Patty was so angry with him, she ate her feelings at the craft services tables in between takes. She gained weight rapidly and caught grief about changes to the costumes. Barbara Parkins had no experience with drugs and didn't understand what she should be doing in the scenes where she was supposed to be sunked out on pills. Robeson gave her no help at all. Parkins felt he cared more about filming the dolls than he did her surf. He'd leave her, sorry, or her scenes. He'd leave her flailing about with her face down in the Malibu surf. Lee Grant remembers that he tried the same bully tactics with her, but she was probably better prepared to deflect his abuse because she was older and had more experience. The director, she noted, was really more of an editor. Robeson shot the picture with a stopwatch in his hand. He had every scene timed and would badger the cast until they met the length he had allotted. He was editing the film as he went along. Granted a scene that he said went to 3 minutes and 42 seconds. Could she do it again and get it down to 2 minutes and 34 seconds? One Friday, he couldn't finish an emotional scene with Grant. When she picked it up on Monday and was letter perfect, 
Robeson pulled her into his trailer and asked her how she did it. Lee replied that she found something from her own life that she could use to play the scene on Friday, and she was able to find it again on Monday. Robeson asked, yes, but how? Lee Grant didn't know how to interpret his question. Was he joking? She answered him by saying, it's called acting. Grant's preparation for joining the cast was intensive. After having been blacklisted for 10 years, beginning when she was in her 20s, Lee felt that the picture was a chance to launch a comeback. She was only 42 when she was cast on the picture, but she had already had a facelift. Lee also took injections made of pregnant horse urine, a popular form of hormone replacement therapy in Hollywood at the time. In her memoir, she's candid about how age hangs over women like a sword. She wanted to act, and that's what it took. Lee Grant's real-life experience goes in tandem with the theme of Jackie's novel. Judy, Patty, Barbara, and Lee either tried to reason with Mark Robeson or yelled back at him. Sharon Tate did not, even though he was vicious to her during the production. During the scene where she wears the massive showgirl headdress, Robeson made her repeat coming down the stairs nearly 30 times. The headpiece was heavy. She was in heels and scantily clad. He wouldn't tell her what he wanted, what she was doing wrong, or how she should do it. He just kept yelling at Sharon to do it over again. He bullied Sharon with the stopwatch for another scene, telling her on what line she should undo the button of a blouse and what line she should use to sit down. For the rest of the cast watching, it was clearly a case of Robeson browbeating the pretty girl. He was trying to break Sharon, to get her to cry. Sharon Tate did not break down. She held her composure. Everyone on the set loved her, and they loved her even more for what she had to endure from the director. One month after the picture wrapped, the film's producer, David Wiesbart, was playing golf in Brentwood with the director, Mark Robeson. They were scheduled to watch the first cut of the film later that evening. The picture was edited by Dot Spencer, who had cut films for Lubitsch, Ford, Hitchcock, and Mankiewicz. Dot Spencer had four Oscar nominations under her belt. Anyway, Wiesbart looked around the golf course and said, this is the life. Then he collapsed, dead of a heart attack. Jacqueline Suzanne was the first author to reach number one on the New York Times bestseller list three times in a row. Her second novel, The Love Machine, published in 1969, was a huge success, followed by Once Is Not Enough in 1973. Jackie's phenomenal success attracted even more critical attacks. In 1969, when Jackie's second book, The Love Machine, reached number one on the Times list, it replaced Philip Roth's Portnoy's Complaint. When she booted Roth out of the top spot, Jackie noted, He's a fine writer, but I wouldn't shake hands with him. If you compare the two authors' work, the amount of graphic detail in Portnoy's complaint far exceeds that of The Valley of the Dolls and The Love Machine combined, 
but Roth channels men's sexual fantasies and obsession. So he received critical praise and became the darling of the literary set. But audiences then and now continue to be enthralled by Jackie's storytelling. Valley of the Dolls is a masterclass in point of view, characterization, and thematic development. The double standards for writing about sex did not impede Jackie's success. She was determined to break the mold, and she did. Jackie's cancer eventually returned. She struggled through rounds of chemo quietly. She died, sadly, in 1974. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Valley of the Dolls, The Love Machine, and Once is Not Enough by Jacqueline Suzanne. Lovely Me, The Life of Jacqueline Suzanne by Barbara Seaman, published in 1987. Dolls, 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 Deep Inside Valley of the Dolls, The Most Beloved Bad Book and Movie of All Time by Stephen Rebelo, published in 2020. Life with Jackie by Irving Mansfield, published in 1983. I Said Yes to Everything, a memoir by Lee Grant from 2014. Call Me Anna, the autobiography of Patty Duke from 1988. Join me next time for episode 88, or oh, 87, when I take a look at Virginia Mayo and Ruth Roman in Great Day in the Morning from 1956. Thanks very much.